0: I'm looking for a bit of advice on sharing some news with the public. Last week, one of our agency vehicles was stolen. We only have two vehicles, and being down one really impacts our program delivery. I'm thinking of using our email list and social media to share this in hopes we might get some financial support to help recover our lost costs and so that we can purchase a new vehicle. Do you think this approach would work?
1: So, I totally do. Uh, with the, <laughs> I'm going to give a caveat here. So, there are a couple of organizations that have that ha- I don't know if anyone ever tracks it, but where you see all the time, there is like a crisis, right, of some sort. And it really, there's only so often you can use something like this. So I'm not saying don't use it, but be really cautious about not over- not always coming out with oh this happened this broke down this got stolen like that starts to then make raise questions in people's head about the authenticity and whether um w- whether you're even running a good shop and being super smart and safe and secure right so like so i so that's a caution but with this i'm going to assume this isn't something that typically happens and i think it's absolutely a great i think it's a great opportunity to share your story so here's here's like the thing right out there that happens all the time People go, I don't want to fund a vehicle. I don't want to fund, you know, whatever operating or overhead expenses or whatever. How cool for you to like... Share a story, like even from the vehicle's perspective. Like I was thinking about this, and I'm getting nerded, like I'm getting nerdy about like sort of fundraising direct mail pieces. But you could literally write a letter or an email from the van that got stolen. Like you could seriously, like make it kind of fun and catchy. Like oh my god, these bad guys got in me, and now, and I'm so like stressed because I couldn't pick up eight, you know these ten clients to take them to their doctor's appointments or whatever, whatever it is. Right? You could you could do this in a way that would be memorable in people's minds, whether they give you money or not, they understand more about what you do and how you do it and how, things like just a vehicle can make or break your organization. So I think the storytelling power of this is huge. It gets me excited. Um Obviously being timely and then like a call to action. You need a call to action at the end of this, right? Like you can't just go out there and share the story and not tell people how to help. You can say, gosh, we've already had five people step up to help support us, but we're going to need to raise 10,000 bucks more or 20,000 or whatever, you know, whatever that figure is like, if, can you help us? Can you help us here? Or do you have, you know, maybe a van that is in good shape that you would want to donate? Like, please just talk to us because every single thing we use and do matters. Like, it's
0: it's powerful. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're exactly right. The getting get being careful about the way you message it is the most important because you don't want to. Y- You like there's a common misperception, especially in like smaller, younger nonprofits that that if you look competent, that people will be less likely to fund you because they think like you've got, you know, you're fine. You don't need my help. Right. And so you need to look needy in order to get money and that's I think absolutely the opposite of the case is like people want to see that you're efficient and effective and and so if if the reason that the van got stolen is because you know like if it's not a great story if you know if it it was totally your fault then then you know maybe maybe think about that yes but if it but if it is like I think yeah if you can tell a good story around it and how it's important it is The, the other thing too is in my experience people do like giving you things more than just money yes so a lot of times you know people want to give you vehicles and you you know, if you're replacing a van that was six or seven years old and you're replacing it with a used van that's four years old, that's actually pretty cool. It is. And it gives somebody the opportunity to get rid of something that they didn't want. And, you know, that's, I don't think that this is that hard of a, this is that hard of an ask for you. No. Um, But yeah, I don't know that I would be embarrassed about like, because things happen. I mean, and you know, if like, why you should have insurance. You know, you should make sure that you've got all your bases covered. Now, like if there's a problem in your building and like the sprinklers exploded or the air conditioner fell in or something like that, you need to be able to explain to donors like like why you weren't prepared to deal with that expense. Um, or that you know it's something yeah. if it's an emergency or something like that. But but in the case of like a van being stolen, I don't see where there's well, a problem.
1: And here's the other thing. I think there's an on, there's an opportunity for an ongoing. Don't don't make the mistake that so many organizations do where they like ask once and then like you never know what happened because that's awful. Like you're like the the person, whether you're giving or you're just reading about it, going, Oh my God, like I wonder whatever happened. Like, so this is a great way to sort of not beat a dead horse, but to maybe have, you know, a few Um, a few follow-ups to say, hey, just an update. God, since our last email blast or whatever, since we reached out, we've had this many people, uh, a thank you, you know, shout out to them, whatever. Like there is huge room to build like loyal supporters from something that's a really unfortunate incident.
0: (laughs) Nonprofit governance.
1: Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit
0: board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit. With your hosts Andy Shurit and Stacy Wedding.
1: Hey, hey, hey! This is Stacy here with my amazing co-host Andy Shurek, and we're here on behalf of and the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits with this episode of Nonprofit Everything, where we answer all of your questions, uh, whether they are burning in your in your brain and soul or just completely just. I don't know, boring, but that's okay. Either one will take. So we just want your questions. So send us your questions. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Thanks to Anne for making this possible. And as always, we love your love. So please share this, uh, like us, subscribe, do all that stuff you're supposed to do when you listen to podcast.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Brenda J Stout CPA, a full-service accounting firm specializing in nonprofit tax compliance and IRS problem resolution. Find out more at brendastoutcpa.com or check the Nonprofit Everything show notes for contact information. Thank you Brenda J Stout CPA.
1: Thank you Brenda. Andy, this question is for you. It actually makes my head spin a little bit just looking at it. So uh, hold on tight, listeners. I get that pledges have to be counted in year one. $100,000 pledge over five years, $20,000 a year made in 2019. We have to book that $100,000 in 2019. I get it. But the actual pledge payments in subsequent years can actually count towards fundraising goals. In other words, in 2020, you know you're receiving $20,000 from that pledge. Your goal is a million. But on day one, you're already $20,000 towards that goal because you have that pledge payment. Or am I completely insane?
0: (laughs) Well, okay, so this is actually not... Not that hard. <laughs> so there's a, there are a lot of numbers in it. So I'll see if I can make it simple.
1: Yes, for those of us who are not number savvy, this, yeah, this like, makes me break out a cold sweat. Like, well, I'm just gonna say.
0: So let's just say, let's just say that somebody's gonna give you a thousand dollars. They say they're gonna they make a promise to pay a thousand dollars, and they're gonna give you that a thousand dollars over ten years. And they're gonna so which means they're gonna give you a hundred dollars a year for ten years, right? So so what the confusion is here is the way generally accepted accounting principles are for finance like the way the accounting team has to record this is when somebody promises to pay you thousand dollars you have to book thousand dollars that's just the rule okay. um there's there's actually an interesting story about that um so berkeley just got is no longer in the u.s world news u.s news and world report rankings of i just heard this last night on the way okay in. um the, so they they used to be like the number two public college right in the rankings they're ranked number two And they got kicked out of the rankings completely because they weren't complying with the U.S. News and World Report rules about how they were supposed to track pledge payments. I don't know why that's Hmm. important, but what they were doing is they were doing it the right way, which is when someone says, I promise to give you $1,000, like you have to book that $1,000. And this is an accounting podcast, thank God, so we won't tell you how specifically you're going to book the (laughs) $1,000, but basically it just goes in as $1,000, right? But then what they're really doing is they're giving you $100 a year for 10 years. So the cash that comes in every year is 100 dollars and it basically sort of chews away at that pledge payment. You know, so after ten years, the pledge is the pledge is received, you've gotten that thousand dollars, you're done, right? Okay. So that's the accounting side of it, and that's just the way the rules are. And the the well we don't need to go into the rules, why it's that way. It's that way because those are the rules.
1: Okay. All right. That's <laughs> right? it. Just black that's and just, white. Those All are right. the
0: rules. Um so um the what the fundraising challenge is is like okay somebody pledges $1000 or and and then the next year they give you $100 and what you want to do is you want to count that $100 towards your fundraiser your personal or your department's fundraising goal for the year like and what what i suspect is the challenge in this particular question is the finance person is saying you can't Right, right. Of course, because we Rules. booked thousand dollars yes. last year. You're like, I know you got a hundred dollar pledge payment, but the rule is, is that you don't. But but what that's doing is that's confusing what the rule is with like what the purpose of keeping track of it is. So so even though the accounting rule is to you put in the thousand dollars, like that doesn't have to be how you budget for your fundraising goal. Like if, for example, this is a, a major donor. And maybe not for 100 bucks, but like let's just say that this relationship is important and you need to take this person to lunch or you need to do some activities. And so there's a reason to count that, making sure that that $100 pledge payment is coming in, like that, that that's part of an ongoing relationship management project. Then, then, sure, go ahead and count it. But it actually comes down to like when you're putting your budget together to compare your fundraising team against, like are you including pledge payments in that budget? Or are you not including pledge payments in that? in a okay. goal setting budget because it's up to you. You can do it either way. There's no hard and fast rule. Accounting has to do it the way that GAP and FASB say you have to do it. That's just the rules or else the auditors are going to come in and like burn the place to the ground or whatever auditors do when they're not happy, right? But but from a from a goal setting and fundraising perspective, you can do whatever you want. And that, like understanding what the purposes of those two documents are, that they are different. The financial statements are the financial statements. You don't have a whole lot of leeway about how they're put together. But as far as internal documents like how you're how you're spending, you want to see that you know the reason is you have a fundraising goal, right? Is you want to recognize that the fundraising team is spending their time right. doing what they're supposed to be doing, and we know that we need to get to these numbers. So whether or not you include that hundred dollars, like you're going to have to spend time technically maybe getting that hundred dollars from that donor. Probably. So maybe you put that in as part of the part of the goal. Interesting.
1: Yeah. So, so I'm curious to know from from a staff standpoint. I mean, it's. Um, so, it's, so there's really not, from what I hear you say, I mean, it, it truly isn't like a problem of internal reconciliation. It's no. just two different, right?
0: If it is, it's because somebody's making it that. Because okay. they feel like they need to. And, and again, I, I, we've talked about this uh, recently, The the development, the system where the money goes in for fundraising and the system that the financial statements are generated from are almost always different. And if they're not different, they're not that good. Right. So there's not a, you know, if you're using QuickBooks, there's no easy way to keep track of pledge payments and all that kind of stuff in QuickBooks. You can do it, but it's a drag. And, and like understanding that they're all in the same system, if that's the same system that your budget is spitting out of, then that that information needs to kind of be coherent. It all needs to be connected and coherent, but, but that doesn't mean that that's what you have to necessarily use for goal setting. So
1: how do you do from like, okay, this is a worst case scenario, but It's happened. And we sadly know of you and I both know of instances where this has happened. Donor makes a pledge, whatever. Economy has every intent of paying you so much every year. Economy crashes. They don't fulfill their pledge. How does that impact the finance side? And then from a fundraising side, I mean, to me, it feels like then it's a conversation of well, you can't put that. Obviously, you can't show that as a success marker of, of, of your activity that year. And yet it sort of wasn't your own fault. Like there's a difference between I didn't steward that donor. Like that feels, I mean, those and are two different questions. Right, decisions. right. Like the donor made bad investment <laughs> decisions, not my fault, right? Like, so like, like onus is off me, like, but, or, you know, like that's not on my back, but it's kind of like, I was just sitting there thinking from a finance perspective, what happens then from like a pledge, like that is... You know,
0: not fulfilled. Okay, so so warning. This is accounting. So go ahead. If you've got a skip button on your podcast player, go ahead and I'm gonna give. I'm gonna do this in 60 seconds. So hit the skip button twice so that you get 30 <laughs> seconds. 30 seconds. Um, on your mark, get set, go. Okay, for those of you that are still with us, what happens when you book a pledge is you you book a corresponding receivable, which is like somebody owes you money, All right? So you're keeping okay. track of the money that that person owes you. Um, so, And then you have to do other complicated stuff because of the time value of money. You have to actually discount it because $100 this year is worth more than $100 next year will be because okay. of inch, inflation. inflation and that kind of stuff, right? So so that's got to be booked as well. So if somebody skips a pledge payment, um, you have to determine whether or not the pledge is at risk. So if, the, if you don't think they're going to pay it, if you think they're going to completely not pay it, that's a write-off. And so you end up writing it off, and that hits the expenses because the revenue hit two years ago whenever okay. the pledge hit. That you have to, you'll book a write-off in the year that you recognize that it's been written off, and that hits an expense line, and it makes your your revenue or your 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 net for the year go down. Okay. Right? Okay. Um, for so if. In most cases, what happens with donors is that you you will have a conversation with them, and they'll be like, "Can we just like like I still want to give you the money. Can we can we extend the pledge payment? Can I give you less this year, and then when it gets better, I'll give you a little bit more?" So you just basically change the you change the pledge schedule. And as far as the financial statements go, that doesn't make any difference. You're going to squeeze the pledge schedule. That may make your time value of money calculation a little bit different. Okay. But For the most part, that's okay. But in general, you're either going to write it off, or you're going to do some calculations to. You know, we we saw that during the recession. We saw a bunch of, of people that saw a whole bunch of money that had been donated and they were like, Ah, oh, it's not gonna work out the way we thought it was gonna work out. Um so and I don't think you know I don't think I saw anybody not pay their pledges, but we did see some pledges get extended from that were five years turned into ten year pledges. Absolutely. Welcome back everybody else. We're done. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I love your finance brain, Andy, and I am so glad I don't do finance.
0: <laughs> but that is, a, I guess I'm wondering if that actually, I mean, that was a fun digression, but did that actually answer the question? Because they are two different things and they don't have to be the same. They don't necessarily have to be reconciled. And it may be more work to have to put together a budget. But but like, so the recession question actually puts, puts a that's a good reason to have those pledges count in the fundraising, you know, because you want to make sure that your steward thing, especially if that's a big dollar amount, you want to make sure that the executive director is like aware this person donated a million dollars over five years. That's $20,000. You need to go to lunch with that person or make sure that they've been in the building or, you know, have conversations so that doesn't fall off your radar.
1: Right. Cause I could totally see, I mean, where my brain went with this question is I was thinking, yeah. So if you're, you know, not a true professional and you're like cool score check that off the sheet i got credit for this million dollar pledge because it was booked financially as a pledge but oh i don't have to do anything else like guess what easy coast like that was a great year for me that made me look great that year what it got booked financially like there's no incentive then if there isn't another tracking system going on in development or like you know sort of showing how you're moving toward collecting on that pledge there's no other incentive to keep doing that
0: I'm a board member of a small nonprofit, and we are putting on our first ever fundraising event. I'm hoping you can share some ideas to make our silent auction as successful as possible. Is there anything we can do to make our silent auction stand out from others? Anything we should avoid?
1: Oh, my first reaction is, oh, God, not another silent auction. <laughs> Um, all right. So I know I, I should be saying congratulations. Yay, your first silent auction. I just know how many hours of work it takes and sometimes for really small returns. So just manage your expectations around this, right? Um, I mean, if you can get volunteers, if you as a board member can have a little committee that just focuses on silent auction in every detail of it, I mean, everything from who you're going after to how you mix it up, how you create packages, right? Like you don't want these one-off items that are like, okay, that's random. Oh, there's this computer that's a silent auction item. And oh, there's this spa service. Like how do you package it, right? In a way that if you think about when you go and buy things, right? Think about, because it truly is like a sales mentality. Like when you go and buy things, do you like things packaged? Like where it's like, oh, I got everything I need for my cool movie night, right? So- I think some of this is is just really being thoughtful, super detailed, have super detail oriented people right who can track everything from, you know, how much it ended up selling for or like, you know, every piece of the silent auction process. Um having the right number of items matters, right? Like sort of the rule of thumb is like one item for every four guests. So so sort of keeping that um in the back of your head. And I think submission, I mean, here's the thing I would say. So no, not to be disrespectful, but there's very few silent auctions I go to where I'm like, wow. Like that's something new. I mean, it's it's very much a similar feeling in each one. <laughs> would
0: you agree? Yeah, so that's sort of my reaction to the question. Is like, like I, I don't know that I would want my silent action to silent auction to stand out. I want my silent auction <laughs> to make the most money. Exactly.
1: Right. Like. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's be honest here. Yeah. How do we make it mo- make the most money? You can um,
0: stand out by like look nothing sold.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um. And you know what? Okay, so I don't know. I'm going to go off a a little bit more on this because I also think that you see groups that don't you know minimum bid amounts right that are too high or that are so low that you know you've started nowhere so there is a there is an art and a science to this i think you can talk to other organizations i think packaging even display like a visual merchandiser like if you have someone that is good at display it makes all the difference even with online you know silent auctions now there's still the table where you can look at it and people go ooh, like that looks enticing that's packaged the right way so i think that makes a difference um Stay away from like service kind of stuff like, oh, good estate planning, photography services like those kinds of things don't work. Art and jewelry are personal preferences that generally don't sell well, like, you know, packages that are like travel packages or like there's a new um Kind of there's a new attraction in town or, or like a restaurant dining thing, whatever, like that kind of stuff always does tends to do better at these kinds of things. And then the big thing I would say is make this about so there's a couple small organizations I work for that, you know, we're kind of like they were looking at the audience that was going to come to their event. And they didn't want to outprice like you can't have items that are going to be so fancy. Like, let's think <laughs> about your, your demographic. Right. Uh-huh. Right. Because if you have super fancy items and like the starting bid is beyond most of these people's ability, like that's kind of like the let's be real. The silent auction is a way to make people feel like they are helping and contributing. So figure out who's in your audience. Right and have packages around that. And I also think it's also like my other thought related to this is just that um, I, I just, I just think that you really want to, if there's anything you can offer with your mission. So that's a mission package where you'll see, okay, this silent auction sheet is actually more of like anyone who puts an amount on here, like of a minimum of 20 bucks basically is going to help us purchase these kinds of services for one of our individuals or like is going to help us provide like this new, whatever, um, you know, like I'm just thinking about if it's even like one counseling session or three meals, right. For, for somebody like it's that also is a super cool way. That right. Yeah. That's what makes, I actually think I'm, you know, cause most people go into the stuff are like, I don't need another package I'm not going to use, or I'm going to forget about, right. <laughs> I'm going to bid on it. How many of us have done that bid on it, win it, and then forget about it and it expires. So like figure out how you can do submission stuff like within there. That's where I think you could really stand out. I love
0: that idea. That's good. So I'll, I'm going to go with um, the things that you shouldn't do. Things that you should avoid. Okay, never ever take items on contingency. So if you go to some place like a pawn shop or whatever, they'll give you some jewelry and they'll say that you know you can you can put this in your silent auction, provided that you get to some base level, right, and that you're actually buying it from them. You're actually you're paying for it from the place, so it's not an actual donation. Don't do that. Number one, um, don't do any puppies. That's just rude yes don't a, don't a puppy do is something you're supposed to plan for yes. not supposed to not something you're supposed Ugh, to get after you've it's so wrong four glasses it's of like trafficking wine.
1: trafficking <laughs> <of> animals <laughs> anyway
0: yeah. oh it's um, awful make sure that you're uh you understand the accounting rules about fair market value and what you are allowed to tell the donors about what their charitable gift is so the the rule is is if the fair market value if the price they pay for it is less than fair market value there's no charitable deduction and you need to make sure that the paperwork they get the receipt that they get is very specific on that point cuz your auditors will come after you on that one so those are those are my three don'ts okay some do's and don'ts for you <laughs> my <on> Mr. don't <laughs>
1: searching for a position in the social services sector, and I am wondering if there is a protocol or best practice for appropriate attire. I may be overthinking this, but I fear that if I overdress, I may come across as ostentatious or like I'm not able to connect with the clients the organization serves. Complicating this further, I'm a recent college grad and just don't have fancy clothes yet. That's part of why I need a job. Any thoughts or
0: suggestions? (laughs) I I guess so. I I think um this I don't know. I'd love to hear what Stacy thinks on this, but I think from my perspective as as a person that hires, like I expect you to walk in looking professional. Like don't look like a clown, like don't walk in in a tuxedo. Right? Like there's clearly like the wrong thing to wear. It's a great visual. <laughs> um but like it's you know if if because you recognize that that a job interview is really your opportunity to sort of sort of show like your best self. So like, think about what you would wear if you're going to a board meeting, like even if you're not normally going to be into a board meeting, that's sort of the level of professionalism that people expect. I mean, and you're going to be you know, 99% of the time, you're going to be dressed better than the person who's interviewing you, yes, right? Yes. Because they're going to be, and then you'll get to see, you know, I think a different question is like, what do I wear to work every day? And that's like, well, what everybody else wears, <laughs> right, right? right? So, so the, but, but when you're coming to a job interview, it's a really weird artificial situation already. Yeah. Um, so I'd say just, you know, be, you know, look, look your best if, you know, I don't know that you need to go buy fancy clothes. And again, answering this as a dude right who who for me like a suit is a suit and like it doesn't have to be fancy as long as it fits um right. but, you know as long as your tie doesn't like totally cl- clash with your shirt you're probably okay but then again you know that's not as a hiring manager that's not necessarily what i'm looking for but there may be in the back of my mind if you walk in with you know a slayer t-shirt under a blazer i may wonder
1: right right <laughs> right right yeah i think there's a fine line um I, I'm I'm totally in agreement about professional. I, I don't think it needs to be, I think there is professional um without being formal and fancy and or without being fancy. I think you need to walk when you walk in that room and I see you, I wanna see someone who spent some time preparing to make a good first impression. Both that comes with not only your resume and cover letter, but how you look. So it doesn't mean fancy, but it means someone that like put themselves together, right? Like, so I just want, yeah, whether it's slacks and a blouse for a woman or just a sort of a nice business dress, or it doesn't have to even be a suit. It just needs to be something that looks professional. And, you know, there's some cool, I mean, I'm sure, you know, this, this, May have already crossed uh, the person who wrote this question in their mind, but you know, there's some cool, you know, thrift shops and Goodwills and like cool things where you can find some great things that don't cost a lot. But I think it is worth taking that step that you walk in and I go, Yeah, they didn't just throw themselves together. I want to see you care, like you cared enough, right? So I think that's it. And then I think sometimes, depending on the position, there's two interviews, right? I think that first that first entrance, like it would be, I'd rather you err on the side of overdressing than underdressing. And then I think you look at people who are interviewing you or the one person who's interviewing you and what they wear. And I think if you come back for a second interview, you can do a little, not completely, but a little bit of matching and mirroring your attire to that person for the second interview. And let me tell you why I say this, Andy. So the other day, I um, have a a friend who recently got a pretty high level position at an organization. And when she was sharing the story with me, she came in dressed to the hilt for um, this position and as she should have. Right. But after the second or third interview, the person hiring her said, you're going to scare off everybody. If you dress like that, like when you come to this job and she took like note of that, she's like, okay, like that's fair. And I get it. And she's like, yeah, I don't want to be that person that staff can't connect to. I don't want to be that person that potential clients can't connect to. So I, I think there is something to be said about thinking about the kind of organization, the culture, maybe getting a sense of, you know, there's some organizations and nonprofits where you see people dress super formal and that's sort of their culture. And for them, I say dress is like, if you can do that research beforehand and come into that meeting, like dressed to you know, show you can fit into that, great. Um, but I also think I think there can be a risk if you continue down the interview process and you don't start to kind of slowly modify what you're doing um to match the culture and the sort of internal expectations of that organization, you can get a sense of that pretty quickly after an interview or two. So I say like it doesn't mean dress down, but it means be cognizant of what message you're sending.
0: Yeah, it sounds like so much work, Stacey.
1: Does it? It does. <laughs> uh, well, people like me like think about this kind of stuff, so yeah. I appreciate this question. Yeah. yeah, it does. You're like, God, really? Do I have to think that much? Yeah, um,
0: I, it, it may be a, the way boys dress and the way girls dress. It might be a little bit different because you know, like you know, just like it's a suit. Like, <laughs> yeah, you're like. I mean, my my thing would be like, did I is this the suit I wore last time? Like <laughs> that's right, the question yeah. I ask. Like I don't want to wear the same suit and tie and shirt combination twice in a row because yeah, that yeah. looks like that's the only one I have. Honestly, that's the only com- that's the only thought I have. Um, you know.
1: There's a, there's a, I was in an interview process a few years ago and I have to just laugh because it was all women and one, there was five of us on the interview panel, four women, one guy, and I felt like It made me realize how much people pay attention. The woman, every woman that walked in for that interview, when they left, the women were all checking out her shoes and her handbag and literally were making comments. Not that they were going to hire her for that, but saying, wow, really like her style. Those are cool shoes. It's just funny. It's just funny how things can influence people subconsciously consciously whatever it is so i know andy it's tortured you to think of all that thought and maybe it's easier for boys i think uh, speaking from a a female perspective i'm going to make sure i'm not dressing with like a shirt that's too tight or that is showing cleavage or or showing too much leg because that right there is like i don't know it's red flags galore so i just think there's maybe maybe women have to be a little more sensitive to this i don't know
0: so okay so what i want to this is if, if you're listening and you thought this was interesting, I'd like you to send in the following question. Should we hire for cultural fit? Please send us that question. Cause I think that's like, that's the continuation of that this is, question. And that is. I don't think that that was what we were asking. No. Okay, before you hit the next button or close the podcast window or whatever it is that you're doing to make this go away, I have a request. So um, coming up, Stacey and I want to do some more episodes with basic questions. So we've been talking to people, and one of the questions that we get from people, we say, how do you like the podcast? What can we do better? And one of the things that we hear is, a lot of these questions seem to be very technical and complicated and um, are for big nonprofits or nonprofits that have big challenges and complications. So what we would love to do is at some point put together a bunch of questions that are sort of like nonprofit 101 level questions. So what I would like you to do is, you know, make a note in your brain, tell Siri, do something, get Figure out a basic non nonprofit question that you can shoot over to us so that we can answer that. And we would love to do a, a podcast or even a series of podcasts specifically on basic nonprofit questions. So do that. Or if you just have a question that maybe this podcast made you wonder, um, go ahead and send that to us too. Thanks again to the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits. They're the producer of this podcast. They're the ones that make it possible. If you're not a member of ANN, please go and join. If your organization is not a member of ANN, um, hassle the person you think is responsible. The person with the credit card that does that kind of thing, just bother them. Say, hey, how come we're not ANN <laughs> members? And Become go, a nag, and they will just do yeah, it. Yeah, and, and the reason you want to be an AN member is that ANN is what makes this podcast possible. So there are lots of ways you can support us. You can share this episode. You can high five Stacy and I. We like that. You can (laughs) join Anne as a really good way to support the podcast. You can send us questions, um, all of those kinds of podcasty things. So please do that. um, And we will see you in a couple of weeks.